We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app you're listening to kcbs in depth really in order to find quality care you often have to be on a wait list that's months long the people places and issues the bay area is talking about the aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule roe for so long they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up in this case there very well may be charges that are appropriate for example trying to obstruct an official proceeding of congress right that is unlawful this is kcbs in depth It's a move that could signal a more optimistic pandemic outlook from California leadership. Earlier this past week, Governor Newsom said that he's getting ready to drop the state's COVID state of emergency, which he first declared all the way back in 2020 when the virus was first starting to spread. So how close are we to that long-awaited new normal? Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Manconi. Today in the program, well, we've sort of been getting mixed signals on the COVID front in recent months. On the one hand, we have the hopeful statements from politicians like Governor Newsom and President Biden, who just a few weeks ago declared that this pandemic is over. On the other hand, we have the all too familiar drumbeat of concerning news trickling out, new variants emerging, new surges predicted, new signs that some of our key COVID defenses might be eroding. And all the while, hundreds of people are still dying every day. So where exactly are we in this pandemic? If we should even call it that anymore. And what steps should we be taking to keep ourselves safe as we enter the colder months, not to mention the holiday season? Well, it's a set of questions that we've asked before on this program, but COVID safety is a moving target. So to bring us this updated look at COVID safety best practices and to re-answer your most pressing COVID questions, we're to welcome back onto the program Dr. Robert Wachter, who is the chair of UC San Francisco's Department of Medicine. Dr. Robert Wachter, welcome back on the program. Thanks so much, Keith. Thanks for having me. So perhaps the most pressing question of all here is uh, help us understand where are we on the COVID map? Lay out the terrain for us. Uh, case counts remain low, but those are obviously unreliable at this point. Uh, wastewater samples seem to be on the rise. And, and meantime, it feels like there's a new report every other day about some new variant that's causing alarm. Um, uh, for a lot of us, to be honest, I think this has all become sort of background noise at this point. Uh, so let's uh, take this moment to check back in with this health crisis. How uh, should us regular folks be thinking about the risks at this time? 
Yeah, it is confusing. It it's so, always seems to be confusing, and and this might be an unusually confusing time because we may be pivoting from an extraordinary period of stability to something that's a little bit more uncertain. I I I think the first point I'd want to make is uh, the most surprising thing about the last six months has been the lack of surprises. Hmm. If you think about the last two and a half years, it's just been one surprise after another, whether it was uh, a new variant coming on the scene or the politicization of vaccines and masks or, um, you know, spikes in, in, in uh, surges in various places. When BA5 became a thing, which was in the spring, um, you know, people like me kind of said, here's what I think is likely to happen for the six mo- next six months. But just caveat, 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 you know, what if this happens, this will change if this and basically not much has changed. So if you think about the past six months, it's been a period of relative stability with the main variant being the one that was here six months ago. We've seen sort of many threats of other variants coming on the scene, but they all kind of faded away. We heard that the the government and the manufacturers were going to shift to a new vaccine, uh, a new booster this bivalent booster. booster. They made a choice to target it against BA5, which was a little bit risky. And it turned out that was a very good choice because that still is the variant in play. They said it will be out in September. I was very skeptical that it would be out in September. It it was. So in some ways, the last six months have been quite stable and probably a version of the best it's going to be for the next several years which is a little bit concerning because we all want this darn thing to go away completely. It's not going to go away. I think this last six months has been kind of a decent relative lull in the pandemic such that many of us are doing things that we didn't do before. I had a surprise birthday party indoors last night with 17 people, something I wouldn't have done. Uh, I didn't plan it, but I wouldn't have done uh, six months ago. Where are we now? You know, threats of some new variants coming on the horizon. Um, and with each of these, you know, they have characteristics that make you worry that they're going to be more immune evasive and therefore take over from BA5. I think it's too early to know whether they will. Uh, winter's coming, which generally means somewhat of a surge. It's not that the virus is seasonal like the flu. It's just that people go inside and they change their activity. So we'll probably see a, 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 at least a mild bump in cases for, for that reason. I'd say the biggest and most concerning signal is how few people have gotten the new uh, the new booster. I think, you know, of all the things that we can do to keep ourselves safe, there's not much we can do about the variants, nothing we can do about a change in the weather. The one thing we can do is take the most up-to-date, uh, uh, incredibly safe vaccine to give ourselves the best shot of having immunity, uh, preventing ourselves from both getting infected and from getting very, very sick. And the fact that so few people have taken it, I find amazing and also quite concerning. That's the thing that worries me the most. Yeah, the uptake figure that uh, Dr. Sarah Cody with Santa Clara County gave uh, earlier this week was uh, 11% of uh, eligible residents had gotten it. So uh, really, uh, certainly not the uptake rate uh, that uh, health officials were hoping for. And uh, there's a lot of threads to unpack in uh, that story that you were just telling there. But I think it also sets a a good foundation to talk a little bit about your own personal COVID risk choices. Uh, You have actually uh, become 
uh, a little bit of a Twitter celebrity talking about the COVID risk choices that you make and, and explaining the, the data that backs them up. I'm certainly among the people who have outsourced a great deal of my COVID uh, thinking to uh, your Twitter account. So I do thank you for that. Um, and on that Twitter account, you made the uh, announcement a couple of weeks back, a few weeks back at this point, I guess, that you are now going to start indoor dining uh, without a mask and that in non-crowded indoor settings, you're going to go in there uh, without a mask. So uh, it, it sounds like this uh, this time of stability that you were sketching out there for us, uh, that played into that decision to some degree? Totally. I, I, you know, the the virus is the virus. The virus is as transmissible as it is you know, as it has ever been, BA5 is actually quite transmissible. Uh, you know, if you're standing five feet away from somebody in a restaurant or in, a, in an indoor, you know, going shopping or whatever, the physics of that, you know, how well the virus spreads is basically we know all about that. So the main variable that changes is what is the probability that a person standing next to me in line at the Safeway or my waiter or the person at the next table in a restaurant has COVID? That's really the main thing that changes. And it has changed massively over the course of the pandemic. So in January, there was a point where it was probably 10% that, that any one person uh, who felt well might have COVID. That was the prevalence of the virus was so high. Mm. Um, and now we're down to a number based on the number I like to follow, which is the asymptomatic test positivity rate at UCSF, which is Basically, people who come in because they broke a leg or they're in for open heart surgery, we test them. Hmm. And so it's a pretty good and to me, one of the most helpful measures of what is the chance that someone near you has COVID. That number is about 1%. So I think a couple of key points about that, that 1% is not zero. That means that at least using that number, the chance is any one person who feels fine in San Francisco or the Bay Area has COVID is one in a hundred, not nothing. Now, if you're around, let's say 10 people, you're in a restaurant and you think about the people who are in airshot of you, your table mates, your waiter, and maybe people at the three adjacent tables. So let's say 10 people, the chances that one of them has COVID is 10%. If you get in an airplane with 150 people, the way the math works out is if, if any one person has 1% chance of having COVID, there's about a 75% chance that somebody on the plane has COVID. The way I put all of that together is that the risk of getting, if you're exposed to someone with COVID, obviously the risk, it's not a hundred percent chance you're going to get it. It's a, might be a five or 10% chance you get it. So the risk that any person around me has COVID is now low enough that when eating inside is the thing to do, I do it. Hmm. So last night, my wife threw a surprise party for me. It was indoors. There were 17 people who I quite confident or vaccinated and updated on their vaccines. We kept a window open, tried to do everything we could with ventilation. But it was a, I, I, I would not be shocked if I got COVID from that, but I thought the probability was low enough and the joy was high enough that that's what we all did. Hmm. I'm going out tonight with a bunch of our residents at UCSF, we're eating outside. I went out last week with a group of faculty, we ate outside. So when it's kind of neutral and you can do outside as easily as inside, why take any risk at all? If I go into a store and I'm the only person there and I've left my mask in the car, I'll just be without a mask and feel pretty good about it. But if I go shopping in the Safeway as I did this weekend, I'm gonna wear a mask. If I get an airplane, I'm gonna wear a mask. At times where I don't need to take a risk, 
I feel like why not continue to be safe? But I do think the case rate is low enough that it's reasonably safe to uh, take the mask off in particularly in non-crowded indoor spaces. And, you know, life is about taking some risks. You know, you wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. You wouldn't get on the highway to drive if you said, I'm not going to take any risks at all. So to me, the risks have fallen to a point where I'm comfortable taking them, although I prefer not to. And I still am moderately careful in a lot of things that I do. Yeah, it's that same cost-benefit analysis that we've all been trying to run in our heads uh, for the past uh, more than two and a half years at this point. And I guess the, the calculus has shifted a little bit. Um, uh, real quick, going to reintroduce you again. This is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today, we are dipping back into the COVID science to get our bearings as the experts warn that another winter surge could be on the horizon. Laying it all out for us, we're speaking right now with Dr. Robert Wachter, once again, the chair of UC San Francisco's Department of Medicine. Okay, so... That's a good sense of where we've been for the past several months at this point, a, a relatively uh, positive time in our in our COVID history. We didn't have something similar to the Delta surge that we saw uh, last summer, the summer of 2021. Uh, but now we are beginning to hear these warnings that a, a, a winter surge could be ahead of us. Uh, we have these new variants that are getting a, a lot of attention. What are you paying uh, attention to at this moment? I'm certainly watching them and watching what's happening in Europe and Singapore, where those variants seem to be. Basically, it's a race between a variant and BA5, the, the existing variant. And a variant needs to and not. We should say BA5 is uh, from the lineage of Omicron. Correct. So, so, and and so are all the new variants. So, there's no variant that appears to be on the horizon that is a whole new ball game mm. as Omicron was and threatens potentially to uh, you know, massively sidestep our immunity, whether your immunity came from vaccines and boosters or infection or both. And by, the, by this point, by the way, there's essentially no one who has no immunity. Mm-hmm. You think about two and a half years ago, there's no one who had any immunity against uh, SARS-CoV-2. Now, if you haven't gotten vaccinated, you've almost certainly gotten infected. And so everybody brings to the table some level of immunity. So I'm watching these variants to see whether they break out and become the uh, the dominant variant abroad, and then very clear, uh, carefully watching the CDC data to see whether they're becoming the dominant variant in the U.S. and particularly in California. And the answer is there's some uptick in the BQ1 variant, which is a little bit more immune evasive than, than BA5. And if it becomes the dominant variant, it will probably drive a modest surge. Do you have to do anything about these variants? There's not much you can do other than be prepared with as much immunity as you can. And that's that's quite simple. I mean, that is getting the getting the new booster. And, you know, people are kind of waiting on it and waiting for the holidays. I think this sort of like an amateur trying to time the stock market. I think, you know, at this point, Hmm. you should just get it and have it on board. It's going to last at least through the holidays in terms of its level of protection against infection. It will last far longer than that in terms of its level of protection against severe infection. And because the variants that we're tracking all come from Omicron lineage, there's no reason to believe that the vaccine won't work reasonably well against them, although it's possible they won't work as well against them as they're working against BA5. So 
worth tracking. I don't, you know, it's until they become the dominant variants in your region and until you then see an uptick in cases, you know, it's more, it's interesting, it's important to follow them, but I don't think it should change anybody's behavior. It's, or it doesn't change the facts on the ground until they're leading to a surge in cases. Yeah, so there is uh, a tipping point uh, for you. Uh, still worth watching the numbers. I mean, what should average residents be looking out for? I don't think that the average person is going to be poring over the wastewater returns uh, that are actually, I believe, are actually posted by some county governments. But They are, yes. Um, uh, I can't imagine that being how people choose to spend their evenings. Uh, wh- what would be your advice for what people should be looking out for to know when it might be time to reconsider some of these behaviors? The number I like to use, which is uh, readily accessible to the public, is the number of cases per 100,000 people in your region per day. And that number, I sort of like it to be below five and certainly below 10. Number is easily findable. If you go to New York Times, COVID and California, you'll see the number of cases per 100,000 per day in in every county of California, or you name the other state that you're going to. And that's the number that I tend to follow. It can change a little bit some days. Some days there's a, a dump of new cases into the database that changes the number. But that number in most of California is about 10 today. Uh, in San Francisco, it's been running about four or five. It's a little bit higher today. But it's in, in that range, five to 10 or below cases per 100,000 per day. What does that mean? It's an underestimate of the true number of cases and because the true number of cases uh, are, are, you know, are not reflected in that number because of, of all the home testing. But it tends to correlate quite well with the number that I follow at UCSF that's not publicly available, this asymptomatic test positivity rate. If that number is five to 10 per day, it tends to mean that there's about a one in 100 chance or below that any individual person will, who feels fine will have COVID. And at least to me, that's a, a threshold number. That's a number kind of that, that means that the risk is low enough that I'm going to get it from a one hour indoor encounter. And it's OK to be uh, to at least to my my risk tolerance, OK, to to accept some risk. If that number starts going up to 15 to 20 and again, totally accessible, you go on the website and find it easily. Uh, then I would stop doing indoor dining and I would be wearing the mask in, in pretty much every indoor setting. All right. Well, I do want to get uh, a little bit more into specific advice for how people should be thinking about a a few different decisions that they're going to have to be making soon. But just to finish out our sketch of the landscape that we're on, I want to circle back to where we started, with which which is with what uh, politicians have been saying in recent weeks, namely Governor Newsom, President Biden. We have heard from Governor Newsom that we are going to drop this state of emergency over COVID uh, early next year. And then uh, a few weeks earlier than that, we heard from President Biden that the pandemic is over. He also said, quote, "Uh, we still have a problem with COVID. We're still doing a lot of work on it, but the pandemic is over. Um, So curious for your response to what we're hearing from the the political end of the world. How well is that reflecting the reality that you're seeing? I think reasonably well. I, uh, you know, I, I think 
clearly the, the the definition of pandemic is kind of fuzzy and it was clear we were in a pandemic in 2020 you have a new novel agent no one in the world has immunity to it it is surging it's killing people left and right we don't have treatments we don't have testing it is you know incredibly challenging uncertain situation that's everybody and and it's worldwide everybody would say we're in a pandemic Coming out of a pandemic, there's really no clear definition. It's sort of you reach a stage of stability where things are not changing rapidly, where people have the tools, by and large, to keep themselves safe. Um, there might be small surges here and there, but no massive surges. And at that point, you're no longer in what most experts would call a pandemic. It really is just a word in a way. You're still in a situation where a lot of people are getting this virus. It's bad. You'd prefer not to. It's killing a fair number of people, still 350, 350 a day in the United States. So it's it's there's no bright line between pandemic and non-pandemic. I think you do have to begin moving back to a, uh, a less emergent stance because people in societies can't be vigilant or hypervigilant forever, they've got to sort of focus on some other things as well. And the trick is, can you do that while also realistically saying COVID's not over? There's still plenty of COVID around. It still carries a risk. You still don't want to get it. You still should do everything you can do to stay safe. The government should still fund research appropriately. There may be some policies that are appropriate. So I think what the governor did is perfectly fine. What the president did I know surprised all of his advisors in the White House. They had not talked about this. They mm. were as surprised as anybody. And I thought the timing was bad. And the timing was bad because it was sort of, <clears throat> it was the week they were rolling out the new vaccine. Mm. And I mean, you don't want to shift your language to try to promote a certain kind of behavior. But because it's a little bit of an arbitrary call when you say the pandemic is over, it's like, why don't you wait a month or two <laughs> after this new vaccine that you really want people to get? before you say that, because, uh, you know, it's, it, it, there is no bright line. So I wish he'd waited on that. But the general point is true for policymakers, and it's true for individuals. We were all in sort of hyper alert DEFCON 5 state for the past two years. And it's actually pretty hard to transition back to how do we truly weigh the risks and benefits and how do we sort of go back to some version of 2019 life without saying foolishly that this thing is gone, I don't have to worry about it at all, because it's not gone and you do have to worry about it. And as we're all seeing, that's a pretty tough thing to do. For some people, the only way they can do it is just say, it's over, never gonna wear a mask again, I'm just gonna do what I did and sort of let the chips fall. I think that's a mistake. But it's also a mistake to say, I'm gonna remain hyper careful, because if you're doing, if you're remaining hyper careful now, I'm not sure what's going to get you out of it because it's, I, as I say, I think this is about as benign as things are likely to be for at least the next several years. So it's a tough time for people to make those choices uh, when we're so used to being kind of, you know, hiding under our kitchen table. Yeah. Yeah. So I think finding that way to chart that middle path is uh, something that a lot of us are struggling with right now. And uh, we're going to dig into some of the questions that folks are asking in just a second. Real quick, going to reintroduce you one last time. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi uh, talking right now about COVID booster shots, new medications and wastewater surveillance. In other words, everything you need to know as we head into the winter months and once again face the possibility of rising case counts. Joining us, we're speaking right now with Dr. Robert Wachter, chair of UC San Francisco's Department of Medicine. So you brought up the reformulated COVID booster shots. 
And when those shots began rolling out, um, it was made clear that their, uh, their, 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 the, the full extent of their efficacy was not completely understood because we were really trying to get this out in time for the, uh, for the fall and possible winter increase in cases, get that protection there. And, and so we are learning now, I would think, a little bit more about uh, how these shots are working in practice. Uh, how much data have we gotten in? What have we learned at this point? Not much. I think we're still mm. a little bit flying blind, uh, and yet we can we can we can say with a fairly high level of assuredness what how they're going to work mm. based on what we know about the prior vaccines, based on what we know about uh, how well this new vaccine elicits antibodies against BA five and how long they last. So, I mean, we first of all we know this vaccine and this booster is is entirely safe. It's the same platform that we've now given to billions of people around the world. And the side effect profile is very clear. The extraordinary safety of the vaccine, I think, is incredibly clear. Yes, we do know that a relatively small number of people, particularly men between about ages 18 and 35, can get this heart inflammation. It tends to be quite mild. It goes away on its own. And their chances of getting heart inflammation from a COVID infection are far higher than your chance of getting COVID, of, of getting it from the vaccine. So to me, it does not change the risk benefit equation for even young men. And I have two sons in that age group, and I strongly encourage them to get vaccinated, boosted, and to get the latest booster. Um, the hope is that the new reformulation leads to a longer period of protection against getting COVID. Mm -hmm. What the, this has gotten very confusing for people. The vaccines have worked extraordinarily well in preventing severe COVID, and it's the reason that so few people are dying of, of COVID now. And they last for a long time in terms of preventing severe COVID, hospitalization and death. But the period of protection against getting COVID, first of all, it's not complete protection. We all know that because we see all these breakthrough cases. But second of all, the period of protection against getting COVID only lasted a couple of months for the last booster or two. So the hope is this will last longer. I don't think we know the answer to that. I, I'm, I'm going to guess that it will, but longer means sort of three or four months, not, not two. I think that would be the best guess. And that may change if new variants come in that are a little bit more resistant to it. But if you weigh all of it together, if you have gotten your last shot of immunity more than six months ago, whether that was from a true shot, a vaccine, a booster, or an infection, your protection against getting infected has waned to almost zero. Your protection against getting severely ill has waned as well, although not to zero. And the benefits of getting this new booster massively outweigh the risks. So I think you should do it. And so the way that we should think about this is sort of akin to uh, an annual flu shot in that the, the shot itself is largely similar. It's just reformulated to target new strains of uh, the virus as it evolves. Is that is that an analogy people could keep in their heads? Yeah, I think the I mean, the White House pushed that analogy uh, a couple of months ago. And it confused people a little bit because the annual flu shot, part of the, the flu shot only lasts for about four or five months, but it only needs to last for four or five months because that's how long flu lasts. Flu, flu is truly seasonal. COVID is not. But I think what they were trying to get across, and it's not, not it's a reasonable point, is if we can just get everybody to take one shot a year, then the level of protection that the entire society will have against severe cases and death will be very high because the shot lasts that long in terms of protecting you against severe cases. 
what it doesn't do, and I don't think it will do, is last a year in terms of protecting you against COVID, against getting a case of COVID. And I, I don't want to get a case of COVID, mostly because I'm fearful of long COVID, not so much fearful of dying from COVID anymore. And so I'm guessing that if we can just have a national strategy and a culture where people gone for their yearly flu shot and their yearly COVID shot, the level of societal protection from that will be terrific. It may very well be that for someone over 70 or 75, or someone with other medical illnesses that puts them at higher risk, or someone who just wants to be safer, they can get and should get another booster every six months to make sure that their level of protection against infection stays high. But for the average person at low to medium risk, if you can get just this shot once a year, you're probably you're going to be in pretty good shape in terms of protection against getting a severe case and dying. All right. Well, all very useful information and a good reorientation as we find out what the next chapter of this pandemic, or perhaps non-pandemic at this point, uh, has in store for us. We have been speaking one last time to Dr. Robert Wachter, once again, the chair of UC San Francisco's Department of Medicine. Dr. Robert Wachter, thanks so much. My pleasure, Keith. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening for KCBS and In-Depth. I'm Keith Manconi. Stay safe, be well. Talk again next week. You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.